Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Jonathan Wang, CEO and founder of EOS Investors. EOS Investors is a vertically integrated hospitality investor with a portfolio over $2 billion of resort properties and urban properties that are highly, highly differentiated, amazing hotels. They operate for themselves and for other people. This was an awesome conversation. We discussed how Jonathan built this business in just seven years, his career before the company, what he learned, his insights. We talked about the impact that EOS has, how they are different from other investment companies and managers, what their strategy is, how Jonathan invests throughout real estate cycles. And we also talk about some of the mistakes he's made and some of his greatest deals. Please enjoy my conversation today with Jonathan Wang. Jonathan, I thought it'd be really cool to start with how you think about hospitality investing in the context of real estate cycles because we're in this crazy cycle now. Maybe it's the start of a new real estate cycle, but I thought that'd be a really interesting place to start. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. And Jake, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to have this you know, conversation and, and it was great that we got to actually spend some time in person this week as well. So, you know, I think it's interesting when, when I first started to have to focus my career a little bit in hospitality, in sort of 2007, 8, 9, in that time frame, you know, one of the reasons why I did was, unlike other forms of real estate, because it's so operationally intensive and capital intensive, I thought that there was more opportunity to invest throughout any point in the cycle. You know, at some points, there'd be more things to do. Sometimes there'd be less things to do, but that there were always people getting in trouble in, you know, ways that were not just related to cycles. And so, you know, I think that's actually been true over the course of my career. But, you know, it's interesting, you you never know exactly when you're going to find opportunity. So I tell people, you know, I started EOS in 2017, and I always tell people that, you know, from my perspective, the stars aligned, you know, everything at the firm I was leaving um, was sort of put to bed. We had sold a bunch of our assets. We had refinanced the rest of our assets and it was sort of a, a clean time to leave. And I had investors that wanted to back me in doing that. And then when I went out to talk to the broader industry about starting EOS, people couldn't believe that I was starting it when we were you know, eight or nine years into an upcycle for a highly cyclical business. And so, you know, 
to me, you can never exactly figure out when cycles are going to start, when they're going to end. You can look at you know data for historical cycles and try to you know think about where you are in the cycle. But generally, cycles you know end with events that are completely unpredictable or predicted. And so you know we are always trying to invest for sort of like the long-term trends and making sure that we're capitalized in such a way that we can deal with shorter-term volatility. And so I think the way that plays out in practice is, you know, there are times that we are incredibly aggressive and think, and and I'd say, you know, we're more aggressive than the market, um, where we think that there's more upside than the market thinks, and that's when we're highly acquisitive. And then there's times that we are less aggressive than the market, and that's when we're actually, you know, generally sellers of assets. And it comes in waves. And so when I look back, and this is not by design, but over my career, we usually are big buyers in chunks and then, you know, go fairly long periods without buying assets. And I think, you know, we've obviously been in a, you know, in EOS's history, which is seven years now, we've, you know, we were sort of like, very, we, we viewed it as very late cycle at its onset. Um, we viewed, then COVID obviously hit. Then we were in this sort of very short post-COVID ramp up and then this, you know, huge interest rate growth period that has, you know, obviously had, you know, a lot of stress in in the industry. You know, I think in our seven years in existence, we've actually gone three of those seven years without investing any capital. And then four of those years, we've been highly acquisitive. How does your approach change based on your perception and what's happening in the real estate cycle. It's, it's, you said it's hard to identify, but are you changing your approach? Not maybe your investment strategy, but like you, how you approach finding deals, structuring your deals, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I always, I always tell our team that, well, you know, we can't predict, right? We are supposed to anticipate. And so in 2017, you know, when EOS first started, we actually fundamentally changed the way we were underwriting, you know, our base case assumptions. And the main thing that we did was that we took sort of our traditional or standard five-year base case model, and we extended it to a seven-year model and we took every single market that we were investing in and we took it through the worst downturn that every single market had uh, had happened to those markets in years one and two, and then took them through a recovery. And you know the reason why we were not very acquisitive in that period of time is not because we weren't trying really hard to find things to buy, but when you did that and you were competing against people that I assume were not doing that and keeping to shorter hold periods without holding through, you know, an economic downturn, we were ultimately getting to prices that were not the market clearing prices for assets or or prices at which owners were willing to sell, right? And so that's basically what we've seen over the course of our, of my career is that, you know, you're always trying to figure out, okay, you know, because once you own something, you, for better or worse, it's yours, right? And so you're not trying to get to the highest price. You're not trying to buy some, you, you know, you're trying to do a lot of what you really believe in. 
but you know, when you make a bad investment, it's tough. And it, you know, if, if you have 10 investments and one's not going well, you spend a disproportionate amount of your time on that one investment. So I've always felt like it's important to be cautious and have a lot of conviction, but the bar is very high for us to invest. And so even though we obviously didn't know when there was going to be a downturn, when you looked in 2017 at historical cycles, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s at the GFC, you know, cycles had sort of been, you know, seven to nine years in length and we were getting deep into it. And so while we didn't know what was going to cause it, and obviously, you know, no one foresaw COVID coming, you know, we thought that there would be something. And there ultimately was something that caused a big dislocation. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, what we w- what we were buying before the cycle turned or before COVID, we ultimately had relative to the industry, much lower leverage, much higher cash flows. We were in markets that had no supply growth and growing demand. And so once we were able to sort of get through, you know, that period of dislocation in early 2020, our capital structures are all in good shape. Our assets are back to you know, generating positive cash flow. And so, you know, we've sort of gotten through it. And so I guess what I'd say what is interesting is, you know, having started my career in the early 2000s, I guess what we're in right now has sort of been the second downturn that I've been through. The GFC was the worst, you know, and you talk to industry veterans and then COVID and now this seems, you know, potentially even more severe, especially in hospitality. And so even as cautious as you try to be, things can be worse than the worst downturn previously. And so I think it's more important than ever not to sort of wink at risks and to really try to understand what's out there and what you're protecting against ultimately for your investors and and, and for yourself and for your company and everything. And over your career, how have you figured out to not run away from the risks and maybe look at the base case potential as the worst case scenario, but not the metrics that you're actually going to buy the asset on or think about making the investment? Because I would think if you're looking at every deal on a worst case scenario, you'd probably buy no deals. So how do you strike that balance? You know, it's, it's, it's a funny question and, I, and I've, I've thought about it over, I've thought about it, especially over the last couple of years. And it's interesting, you know, now doing this for a long time, I have so many friends in the industry. But if I'm being actually honest about like how I see myself in the industry is I've always seen myself as a little bit of an outsider. And, you know, I don't know if that's because, you know, so much of the industry, you know, went to Cornell or, or what the inner circle or the old guard, where it came from or what it did. But I've always sort of like felt like we've been very active and big and active participants in the industry and friendly with everybody, but really trying to create our own views. And I guess the reason why I've thought about that is there's been a number of times in my career where we've invested where other people haven't been. And our biggest question that we've asked ourselves when we see this and we see huge opportunity that no one else is in a pretty efficient world is why no one else is there. And, and we rack our brains and we try to figure out what are we missing because we're new and we're young and, you know, are we thinking about things right 
but we generally have a very simple investment framework. It's very data oriented. You know, one of the great things about the industry is it's got fabulous data back to 1987. So you at least have good data through three full cycles, you know, supply, demand, there's actually really good supply data going forward. And ultimately our investment thesis is incredibly simple is to try to buy non-commoditized real estate in, which means that assets that people will pay more to stay at. So they want to shop for the lowest price in markets that have, you know, attractive supply demand dynamics. So ultimately where demand's outpacing supply, occupancies get above thresholds where you have pricing power and you can use operational leverage to your, to your benefit. And, you know, there's large periods of time where the market or the industry at whole is sort of focused in the right places or in the same places, or, you know, that's where there is growth. And then we've found at points in time, there's been huge pockets of opportunity and we're trying to sort of get into those pockets of opportunity before before others and then trying to make sure that, you know, we are actually seeing something correctly and not doing something that everyone else isn't seeing things right and that we're actually onto something that, that, that could have a lot of legs. I want to hang on the outsider's comment for a little bit because I think it's very insightful, but also very true. And it's weird because hospitality is a very small industry. But I do think that particularly with the introduction of all of the private equity funds and big institutional capital providers, that there sometimes does feel like a very big herd mentality. And when you go to conferences or when you talk to people, a lot of people tend to say the same thing. And a lot of the times I feel differently. And I found in my experience, when we are getting off-market deals and we have the most conviction around something, that is when some private equity firms tend to have the least conviction or just generally pencils down for macro reasons that have nothing to do with the deal. With your background coming from that world, was being an outsider kind of your approach attempt to basically carve your own path and break out from that as opposed to just becoming a CEO of, you know, one of the firms that you started at? So my path, so I started my career off at, at, at Goldman Sachs. And in the early 2000s, Goldman's private, I started out investment banking, which was an amazing training ground to try to, to, to sort of understand like the framework of all of the public real estate world. And I switched into their private investment area where the funds were mainly allocators. And so partnered with local operators. And by the time I was already there, it was an incredibly big organization. I mean, I think at that time, they were one of the largest owners of real estate across the globe. And what I felt there, and I was there for about two and a half years, was ultimately I felt very removed. And I was young, but very removed from actually the what was driving performance. So, you know, I was working across all property types. Our local partners were incredibly savvy and talented. They would send us pro formas. My bosses would cut things back or figure things out. I was processing it. And I looked around and, you know, I was sort of like a big coordinator of everything, right? Do, you know, the diligence and you would call these people. And ultimately, I, I had unease about that because being at that time, I guess, like 25, 26, 
my whole career was ultimately really dependent on this big machine and what skills would I actually be able to do on my own? And, and so I, I've always been entrepreneurial. So in 2007, I went and was the third employee at this firm called Northwood Investors, which was started by John Kukrow, one of the founders of Blackstone's Real Estate Group. And when I was there and early on, and there was no infrastructure and you had to figure out how to buy things, it was a super efficient time. It was before the GFC. Um, it was in early 07. And what became clear was that you had all these local operators that were finding all these deals. You had all these big private equity firms. You had the public REITs. You had the super efficient market. And if you wanted to make any investments, you know, you had to try to like not only find the investment, but you had to find the right partner. And then you had to give up the biggest promote. And it seemed like this adverse selection mixed with ultimately really bad economics to your end investors. And so it seemed like a, a really bad setup. And so it was sometime, you know, I'd say like early to mid of 07 that we made the decision to say, okay, we need to take a more proactive approach. And so the way we're going to do that is we're actually going to source everything. And if we sourced everything, we had to underwrite everything. So we weren't relying on anyone. And then we had to then figure out how to run it. And those were all different decisions. And so, you know, then, then the GFC started sort of like middle of 07. I think that's when you had Bear Stearns go under. Then you had middle of 08. I think that's when Lehman ultimately went under. And then, you know, we didn't buy our first hotel until the beginning of 2010. We bought a five and a half million dollar hotel in Houston, Texas, right? And so, in some ways, this was a, was a huge blessing because I had this huge amount of time to actually figure out how to do this. Because even though I had training in real estate a bit, it actually wasn't really that transferable to what we were trying to do, which was really a true, like, ground up approach to underwriting real estate, operating real estate, building relationships, and all that. And so, you know, in that time frame, you know, that's where this framework came from to say like, okay, like, I don't know, there's not long-term leases to go back on to model. So how do you know what revenues are going to be like next year? Or how do you know what expenses are going to be? And I still remember the first hotel that I tried to underwrite from for myself and the office I was sitting in and I was like, okay, so let's just assume that revenues grow at 3% and expenses grow at 3%. Like what happens, right? And then, well, what happens if revenues are higher? And then how could I get comfortable if that would ever happen? And what expenses go up more? And so figuring out all of that, right, that was a very isolating process, you know, because some of the people that were probably the most savvy to do it in the industry were people that we were not going to be working with. And so you couldn't have them sort of teach you. And, you know, you had to like figure out like your own foundation, right? And and in that foundation from what we did, you know, I mean, at that point in time, we underwrote every single investment opportunity that was in the market, every single one. I'd fly to every market, see every hotel, like try to figure it out, talk to them, see what GMs were saying. See, And so it was this very like ground up approach to like trying to build conviction. And it was a very sort of, insular approach that was first me and then our team. And, you know, ultimately it grew. And as we bought assets and we had real life examples to see, you know, what was working and what wasn't and how it all played out. And so all of that was sort of done in a, in a pretty isolated way. 
Now, through all of that, I've made unbelievable relationships, you know, great mentors, unbelievable partners, great counterparties, and terrific friends. And so it's not, now I don't feel like an outsider in the sense of like not being welcome in a community, but I still feel like the way we look at the world at points in time is different than the herd like mentality, the group think that can sort of creep into the industry. I want to go back to the debt piece because across real estate cycles, you'll find the wealthiest people are the people that have owned real estate the longest. And debt is typically responsible for the majority of blowups. Like maybe there's some scenarios where markets turn and they never recover. What does this strategy around debt look like at EOS? You know, I think debt is, to me, I always like to keep our financing assumptions very simple. And so I always, I always say we like to use, and this is a vague answer and then I'll get into it a little bit, but we like to use the appropriate level of debt to maximize returns without putting financial risk into the investment. Because what I have seen in my career is even if something doesn't blow up, if it is financially tenuous, you will make the wrong decisions. You will not invest where you have to. You will cut expenses when you should be reinvesting and you will be doing all of that. And so ultimately to create the best outcome for our investments, we need to not have financial stress in the system. I think across all of our investments, what that's ultimately led to. And so, so I guess typically what I'd say is on a financing basis, historically we've said, we're usually sort of max bank lending borrowers. And so we would go out, great relationships with a number of the large banks, Wells Fargo, RBC, Citibank, and, and many others. But we would generally figure out what they felt comfortable lending. It was sort of a low cost of capital. We would, and we would, we would take those proceeds levels. We generally didn't borrow with a lot of MES. In, small instances here and there, but generally we had sort of max bank financing. What that you know historically meant was usually like 65% of purchase price was sort of where you could get to in the bank market. And then there were a number of assets where we were lower levered because they were more transitional. We actually own a couple of investments completely unlevered because we you know have said, look, there's 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 risk to this certain period of time. Let's own it unlevered. Once we stabilize cash flows, then let's put on the debt. And you know, there's a couple of investments that we bought that had a lot of cash flow and going in yield, where we were a little bit more levered than sixty five percent going in. So, I think on a blended basis, we're about fifty percent levered on the portfolio, with a number of assets at sixty five, some unlevered assets, and very few that are are, are more levered. And then every time we sort of get big cash flow growth or there'd be a situation where we could either look to monetize either sell or refinance we go through a process of saying okay you know what do we think the next couple of years look like is this something that we should do and so we are actively refinancing our assets you know when we own them to make sure that the financing is always optimizing our returns without putting risk in and then you know one of the things that i'm incredibly you know, fortunate that we did is that we were, were, were very conscious. One of my good friends is the one who I, I, I would give credit to for, for telling me this. And this is, you know, back in 
he's, he's been talking about this since the 2017, 2018, before we even had debt. He said, you, you should always be focused on your, the length of your untested term. And so even though we might have maturity dates that are three, four, five years out in the future, we're always focused on how much term we have before we start to hit any financial tests. And so as we owned a lot of resorts and they did incredibly well, we refinanced our entire portfolio at the end of 2021, early 2022. And so, you know, one of the reasons why we're sitting here without real debt issues is because we, you know, have basically pushed out the terms of our debts far. And so I think people usually like to talk about financing just in terms of like attachment points. But to me, it's not just attachment points. It's also making sure you're very actively monitoring that over the life of the investment to optimize your returns, but also make sure that you don't get caught with any any type of issues because the world's just getting more and more volatile. Do you have a position on fixed versus floating rate debt, regardless of where we are in the cycle? Is there a philosophy that you live by at EOS? We've, we've generally been almost exclusively floating rate borrowers with hedges and, and, you know, try to buy long-term caps. And generally, and this is, I guess, over the course of the last 20 years, what we've seen is cash flows and hospitality are usually pretty correlated to the economy, which are usually pretty correlated to interest rates. And so, you know, outside of this time period where there's just a ton of noise uh, happening, we've valued sort of the flexibility of floating rate debt to sell or refinance earlier in hold periods um, as opposed to fixing it. Um, we, we fixed a few things over time, but for the most part, we're, we're floating rate borrowers with you know, long-term caps in place. If your focus area is primarily non-commoditized hotels, what does that do to your evaluation on supply in markets? Is that something that you're very concerned with or are you making an assumption that in a lot of the markets you're investing in, it's very difficult to replicate the potential investment that you're making or the asset that you already own because it's so differentiated? We are maniacally focused on supply. So, you know, even though hotels, even though non-commoditized hotels can outperform or might not be quite as sensitive to supply. I'm a huge believer that every ounce of new supply is competition and it sort of trickles down. I think, you know, in certain things that we look at buying, you actually realize that supply might not even competitive supply might be broader than just your geographic market. And, you know, it might be dependent on what's happening in neighboring markets or, you know, if you're buying a ski resort, like it's actually how much new supply is happening at any other ski resort in the country. And so we are always trying to figure out like what supply is competitive, but for sure anything at any level is really competitive in in a given market. And then, you know, I do think luxury is a bit immune from more commoditized supply, but, you know, as you go up, you know, even, you know, I, I think it's becoming harder and harder to, differentiate and I think you see it in the rates that different properties are, are getting, you know, between you know three star, three and a half star, four star, even four and a half star, where is really the cutoff point and where people won't stay or will stay, I think is, you know, becoming much more fluid, especially over the last decade with I'd say really like the proliferation of 
select service hotels and how nice they've become and how new they are and the amenity and what people want. And so I think supply is ultimately the the kryptonite to revenue growth and you have to be focused on it and you know all of it sort of all of it's competitive. Do you think about rate ceilings in these regional resorts or non-commoditized hotels? It seems to me like whether it's a three-star hotel or a four-star hotel, people aren't associating price with the services or the star rating. They're associating price with the experience that they get and the value that they get. So have you found like this sweet spot anywhere on that range where you feel like you can maximize price relative to the luxury value of it? You know, in those markets, it, it, in the resort market specifically, it's, you know, I, I, I'd say that the opportunity exists all the way up and down from three star to five star. There's, it, it's really about the right assets in the right markets and the right tiering and the, and the experience that you deliver. And so we've seen great growth sort of in that entire sub-segment of the industry. And we've seen it, we saw it for you know a decade before COVID, actually. So, and if you look at the data, it really goes back to the 90s. It's basically been outpacing almost everything else in the country for 30 years. And I think that the trends towards drive-to-leisure are going to continue to be incredibly strong and there's no supply. But I think, I think it's, there's points in the cycle where the higher end assets grow faster. There's points in the cycle where the lower end assets might grow a little bit faster, but, but wholly speaking, anything in that, in that range has, has performed incredibly well. And I think as, you know, airfare continues to get more expensive, international travel continues to be harder. People have discovered these destinations. People have more flexible work so they can take more long weekends. I think all of the tailwinds towards that subsector you know, are continuing to be incredibly bright. And, and one of the things that's not intuitive, but this goes back all the way to the downturn in 01. You saw it in the GFC. You saw it, you know, in a unbelievably pronounced way during COVID is that people's vacations, while they seem like discretionary spends, they're not. And so they might be, discretionary in the magnitude of their spend, but they are not really discretionary in whether or not people will take them or take that time with their family. And so ultimately what we've seen and why why we love that space so much is if you do hit tough economic times broadly and people still want a vacation, they can take a much less expensive vacation by just cutting out airfare. And so they can drive to their, their beach or their, you know, wherever, wherever is sort of within a couple hour driving distance and they can save a ton of money or reallocate that spend in, in other ways. When times are good, markets that also have, you know, desirable amenities, but also have no supply, have great pricing power. And so generally speaking, we love sort of like the leisure play where, you know, there's no supply almost at any point in the cycle. You just have to underwrite it correctly because over long periods of time, demand for, leisure spend is far outpacing you know, the flat or in many cases negative supply that's happened over the last couple of decades. What drew you into hospitality and 
made you want to build a business all around hotel investing? So I realized probably about 15 years ago that you know, I, I was curious. And, and, and actually, the pillars of EOS are that we want to be a kind and a curious company. And, and I think that when you take those two words and you sort of think about what they all encompass, you know, they encompass so much more. But from, I've always been a curious person. And that, and that started from, you know, you know, wanting to start my own company, going to smaller companies and whatnot. But when I would go, and this was even before I was focused just on hospitality, when I would go and I would stay at hotels, every time I'd go to a city, I'd go and I'd stay at a different hotel. And, you know, I did that because I was just curious about like how people were staying, how people were using spaces, what they were doing. And as I started investing in hospitality, what I loved about it was that it touched everything and it was really like this window into the world. And so I could actually talk about everything, right? So exchange rates mattered, what demographic trends were mattered, how cities were moving mattered, you know, what events were happening in different cities mattered, everything. And so it allowed me to sort of you know, not just be curious and care about the world and being an active participant in the world, but actually to use all of that to hopefully, you know, make me better at what I was doing in my day job and hopefully be a better husband and be an interesting husband and, you know, interesting to the people around me and not just be so closed in terms of like what I was thinking about at work and how I was segmenting. And I sort of like to have the overflow of, you know, my personal life into my work and vice versa. And, and, you know, really sort of a big believer in like living one life, right? What are some of the insights that you picked up on, whether it was early on in your career or now just by being immersed in hotels, whether it was on business or on personal vacations that you've made a point to integrate into the investment philosophy that you have today? Ultimately, I think it's a, it's a balance between trying to say, what do I like that I think the rest of the population like will like and that matters? And what do I like that just doesn't matter for an investment? And that's, and that's the tough thing to sort of separate, right? Is, is, is personal preference versus overall big trends. And so I try to always have a lens of, you know, why are things happening? Why might I be interested in them? Do I think that that is happening more broadly or is that a unique specific thing that might be happening to me because I'm growing up or getting older or having a family or, is that something that, you know, fundamentally is changing in society? And so, you know, I, I, I think that, again, what's important is to try to like block out all the noise that comes at us every day. More than ever, there's more data. You know, sometimes that data is right. Sometimes that data is wrong. You know, but really trying to s- decipher what's happening, why it's happening. You know, most things don't fundamentally change quickly. But in the last couple of years, some things fundamentally have changed very quickly and some things. And so it's really being curious about like what's happening more broadly speaking in the world, what's happening, you know, to me that I might be seeing, how does that dovetail? And then are there underlying causes for how that's happening? And then really sort of always going back to data to say, you know, ultimately 
like, does the data prove out what we're thinking or not? And actually, like, realizing that it doesn't matter what our initial thesis was, if our initial thesis made us run down a path, and then we realized that we're, we were either right or wrong on that, then being actionable against it. And so, you know, I think fundamentally, like in the last couple of years, you know, and I think some of this is, you know, true for me, but, you know, I think, you know, and, you know the data starting to prove it out is there's all this noise in sort of the shutdown and then the reopening and then how people were traveling and, and now this reversion to norm a little bit more, but like, where do we ultimately settle the, the real thing? But fundamentally, I think two things have happened in the last few years. I think one remote work is more prevalent. So it's not going to be fully remote. It's not going to be fully in the office. But I think, you know, what it looks like is sort of stabilizing is that while people used to be in the office on average close to five days a week, that's stabilizing now on, you know, around three and a half days a week across the country, right? And so how does that impact how we're going to invest and where we think everything settles? And then two, I think, and I think there's a lot of sub-reasons for why that can happen. Two, I think the other thing that's happened is because, you know, COVID was such a long duration, people value time together, especially, you know, personal time with their family more than ever before. And so I think that those two fundamental things will likely alter the trajectories of where stabilization occurs as we go out. And then like everything off of those two effects, there'll be derivative effects and, and, and things that you have to be cognizant of. But that, that, that's sort of, you know, how we see what's happening right now in the world. And you're trying to apply that to how we're investing. In your own portfolio, how do you rationalize having resort hotels and then maybe more urban hotels that might not even be resort urban? They're more like corporate urban because everyone likes to kind of put you in a box. Like you're the boutique hotel guy, you're the resort guy, you're the limited service guy. How have you figured out to have a portfolio with both types of assets? So it's a great question. And I actually can answer it pretty directly now as, you know, as opposed to a couple months ago where I probably would have fumbled a little bit more. So going back to like creating this framework of how we how we invest. Historically, what I've said our main focus was, was wanting to know everything that's going on in the top seven urban markets in the United States, and then in resort markets, which had generally me- meant, you know, top seven urban markets, Florida, California, and Hawaii. And then our definition of resorts continued to expand, you know, as we went sort of all up and down the East and West Coast and saw similar dynamics in you know, less known markets that we're drive to from, from, you know, incredibly fast growing in large cities. And so we continue to think about it, but th- at our core, that's really like where we've seen markets have pricing power over the last 30 years is, is, is in, is in those places. I always pushed back when people would say, well, you know, how do you focus? Do you resort or are you urban? Because I said, look, I think hospitality is narrow enough. So we do everything in hospitality. But I think actually the next step of the evolution to that is what don't we do? We have generally not been, and we don't have the experience in doing large scale select service commoditized product. There, there are a lot of groups that have done that for years. They're 
terrific at it. They've made a lot of money doing it. I've never fully understood the investment premise to where we allocate capital into it. They have. And so if we saw something in that space that was so interesting, I would have a very tough time understanding why this was coming to us or why we were doing this and whatnot. And not to say that we won't ever do it, but I think that we will highly likely not be doing it. We don't traffic in it. We're we're not the go-to person to call like we are for other things. And so, you know, for me, while we do do corporate and urban hotels, hopefully that do have a big leisure draw to them usually, and we do do resorts, I think we understand those two segments incredibly well. We have a great framework that we feel very comfortable with that gives us conviction to be, you know, very acquisitive at certain points. And so I think that we'll continue doing it. But, you know, across the whole broad section of the industry, I think there's a lot of stuff that we just don't, you know, do a lot of. Um, And then, and I'm curious about it. Like, I actually hope that we will figure out ways to participate in being successful investors in it. But at this point in time, I think there's been so many people have done so much more of it and do it really well that, it's not a logical thing for us. And we still don't have like a real thesis on why we should, but why now is the time. So I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning of your answer. And you said a couple months ago, you would have fumbled through it. Did something happen in your company from a strategy standpoint or an epiphany over the past couple of months that led you to frame the answer in that way? Yes. So I think one of the things that I love about my job is that I learn every day and I learn in all different ways. And I want EOS to be a learning culture. And over the last couple of years, or I guess, you know, one of the, one of the parts of our business is that we are fundraising. And one of the things that I think we do well is I think we build a lot of trust and really good relationships with our with our, with our investors and our prospective investors and our partners. And there's one group that we have a great relationship with and I've, we've talked to them for years and I actually, but they haven't yet invested with us. And I said to them as part of the last, I said, Hey, like, I know that this might not be the right time. They don't have an allocation right now. And I said, but you know, we've had, we've had such a great relationship. I would love your advice. Cause you hear from people all the time. Like how would, how could we improve? Like, like what would make it whatever? And the question and, and the feedback that he said is he said, you know what I, you know, what I think you would be great at telling is like, what won't your portfolio look like? And I said, that's really interesting because in my mind, it's so clear. And I've been doing this for 15 years that I have a very clear vision of what the portfolio will look like. And I actually, for some reason, try to push back against the constraint of being too constrained on what it's going to look like. But the reality is, no, like our portfolio is not going to look like so much over here. And so let's actually talk about what it is going to look like and why and what it's not going to look like and what you can expect. And that was an incredibly clarifying moment for me because, you know, I like to think that we're incredibly smart. We'll find where the opportunity is, opportunity moves and it might, but like, you know, now we've been doing this for 15 years and we have a lot of conviction in where we invest. And so I think that I've taken a lot of comfort from that and understanding like, you know, look, 
you are like if you have beliefs and you believe in them a lot and you know they've they've done well and you sort of build on them and you lean into it like it's it's totally good to say what you what it is going to be and what it isn't going to be i love it there's that old saying it's like go seeking advice and you'll get money go seeking money and you'll get advice <laughs> i haven't heard that but i like that but it was it was really interesting is and and you know one of the things i'm actually really focused on in, into the next next stage of the company is continuing to like really build our learning loops and ask for feedback everywhere right like you know, how did this go for when we bought a hotel? How did it go when we sold the hotel? What was the learning lesson from this process that we ran or this? And, you know, how could we be better or learn? And, you know, it's interesting because people have all these, they're happy to share it and there's perceptions in, you know, in life, like, you know, you know, what's the meaning of life? Like, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of them, but we just want to always get better and learn and be curious and, and hopefully leave the world around us in a better place, be good to all the people we interact with and you know, just continue to improve as people. What does your strategy sessions look like at EOS? How often do you review the strategy? How often do you revise the approach? And who's involved in that process? So, you know, the, the company's evolved and grown a lot over the last seven years. So, you know, right now we, we, we've grown, so we're, we're a hotel investment manager, and then we're also, we have a, a hotel property management company. Between those two divisions, we have about 60 corporate employees and probably about 5,000 employees that work at the hotels. And, you know, those two groups work incredibly closely together, but they also, you know, have you know their own focus to it and so you know as those areas have grown you know the strategy of those areas you know have differed a little bit but the 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 commonality is that you know we all want to think like owners and you know so i'm and the one thing that is pervasive through our company and through our whole ecosystem you know and i think it was charlie munger who said this but you know show me the incentive i'll show you the result everybody sort of shares in positive outcomes in a very similar way and so and and that's not just corporately we actually extend that all the way down through our you know senior property level teams in many cases and so you know the strategy i would say you know is to you know on the investment side is to continue when we to be cautious to be cautious but have conviction and you know i think that is sort of like you know what we do on a daily basis and then i think you know on the on the management side is try to be how can we continue to be innovative and to manage you know the portfolio that we manage you know in the best possible way you know given all the changes so how do we use being smaller and nimble to our advantage but how do we use the scale that we have now also to our advantage so that we're not too small or too big to sort of like move and so we're, we're you know be right at the sweet spot of that you know, the strategy, I would say we, I would hope that we are continually evaluating it at all times. So every single day we see data, we see bookings, we see everything like what's changing, what's not, should we be changing how we're doing, you know? And, and so, 
you know, I'd say generally we meet at the beginning of the year or, or at, you know, around this time as we get ready for the end of the year into the beginning of the year and try to create sort of an outlook for the next year. That's on our individual assets. That's broadly on how we're going to try to um, acquire what we're going to sell. And, you know, we try to set that strategy up at that time for the continuity you know, for, 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 for the next year or so. That said, you know, the strategy that we've had, I think, is like a winding road over the last 15 years. And so, you know, what, what I take great comfort in and actually continues to build conviction is in is we were probably the largest buyer of drive to leisure properties in the United States in 2019 and early 2020. COVID, which we didn't expect, happened. Every trend that we saw then still holds today. In fact, the line you know got a little bit more favorable. We continue to be big buyers of that. We've waited to see some of the distress in the urban markets play out to hopefully create buying opportunities. We didn't see it for a long time. We're starting to feel that stress come. And so, so none of these things, I, I don't think it's a change of strategy. It's just sort of like an evolution of where we are in the time frame of where we're going to be focusing. And so, you know, we, we have uh, about 10 senior people at the company across the two divisions, and we get together, you know, on a monthly basis to make sure that we're exchanging information sort of formally in the group, but the dialogue's happening amongst the 10 of us, you know, and really the, you know, the 60 of us and hopefully the 5,000 of us, you know, on a daily basis. And, 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 I, and I think like, you know, the numbers have changed a little bit, but basically what, what I've always tried to figure out is like, it's if we can have the strongest connection from 10 to 60 to 5,000, right? Or 20 to 100 to, to 10,000, whatever, whatever the size is, if we can make sure that we're seeing it and getting information flow from the properties back up to ownership back, you know, in a very fluid way, then we will be at our best. Where I feel like we've messed up has been sometimes on, as we've grown, getting the communication back from the operation side so that they feel like they're also in the owner's seat. Have you done anything unique or special, maybe special to you, insightful to you at your company to make that communication flow really seamless? And I do want to go into the incentive component, but outside of that, is there anything that you're doing to make sure that link doesn't break? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're doing a lot. I think that we are better than ever at it now. I don't think we've lost anything with size, you know, in scale, and we're still not that that big, obviously. But we really do view the general managers of our properties as the CEOs and the corporate, the job of our corporate team and ownership is actually to provide expertise and resources where needed. But when this is working really well, the general managers are really empowered to run that property. And a lot of the driving happens at that level and sort of our regional level you know, sit really outside of the corporate entity. And we work very hard to try to make sure that the corporate team is not just, you know, being, is creating any bureaucracy, right? And so bureaucracy is sort of like anything that is sort of a time suck 
or not allowing the properties to be as nimble as they can be, right? And and highly incentivizing the property in many ways to raise their hand when there's issues that are six months out. Because what I learned early in my career is if you see an issue six months out, maybe you can not deal with it and hope it goes away, but it almost never does. If you have six months to plan against it, you can really mitigate it. If you don't plan against it, it could become an issue in six months. And so we need people to raise their hands early and often and feel that they there's a safe culture to do so. And if they do, that you know, we're gonna sort of see that, hear that, and then, you know, hopefully add value from ownership or from corporate operation levels. And then where it works really well is if we can create good ideas, we being the corporate team, you know, not, not, not just me, where we are actually bringing ideas that they wouldn't actually hear from anybody else, that they say, wow, you're now making my life better, or wow, that would be amazing, or wow, I haven't thought about that. And we do have a number of examples of it, but a couple of things that I do want to highlight because they are unique and they are having huge impacts. And I, you know, I'm excited about this hopefully becoming much more of a norm is that we became one of the largest third-party management companies in the country about two years ago to offer paid parental leave to all of our hotel level employees. And so, you know, that is not something that happens broadly and actually, yes, you know, on its face is, you know, an incremental expense, but we have actually, we believed, and when we did all the work and the data on the program that we wanted to roll out and offer, we actually believe that through retention, recruiting, a talent, you know, attracting better people and everything, that it was an enormous benefit actually to the properties, to the teams, to morale, ultimately to the guests of doing it. And so we actually rolled that out. And, you know, when you roll that out to, and that was a corporate initiative, right? And the general managers see that and the executive teams at the property see that, you know, I think it actually starts to build a real camaraderie of culture and say, hey, like we're working with great people. They're trying to be innovative. They care about us. And it's not just about, you know, maximizing the dollar on, you know, for the next month, but thinking about long-term, you know, our families and everything. The other thing that we've done, which has also had a tremendous impact, is we actually, many of our properties now charge a social impact. We've created a social impact fund that we have, you know, guests contribute to and we plan and actually the properties figure out where we invest that capital that's most impactful in the communities that we currently are, you know, located in. And so what's amazing about that is that we all of a sudden in those instances, you know, go from just being this like standalone entity to really being integrated into the community, what's important. And, you know, as very heavy people business, right? Our employees and our, our, our team members live in the communities in which we're doing that. And so there's a real sense of pride. And we've seen some pretty wild feedback loops there that we didn't expect, which were, and we're trying to figure out how we get this even more out into like guest consciousness because we've even seen some guests say, oh, wow, we saw that you do this. Like, would that be something that we could participate in? Not just monetarily, but actually like as an activity. And you're like, okay, so like this whole like being a part of a larger community, giving back, um, being together, you know, has a lot to it. And so 
I think that while we all have our own, you know, lives that we're dealing with and our own problems and our own excitements and families and this and that, is that we do spend a lot of time working and, you know, trying to create continuity and culture and ownership at every level of the organization and every property is something that we're incredibly focused on. We're trying things, we're being innovative, you know, and, and we, we do those things. I view that as actually an extension of investing. You know, the way we try to invest is we try to invest where we see a lot of upside, limited downside and have optionality in all of these things. Instead of just waiting to have the perfect plan to just get it right, I want to try, do and constantly innovate and improve and lean into what we're doing really well. And the things that don't have a big impact, we stop or, you know, can pivot or change direction or change. And what I've seen is, and I've seen this in my life a lot, is like, if you just try things, you figure out what works and what doesn't. But if you just sit there and just wait, 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 you know, then, you know, time just passes and you never get anything done. Absolutely. So you have a vertically integrated company. And the beauty of that is as the owner and the operator, you can do whatever you want from an operation side. There's no one to answer to but yourself. As you've been growing the management platform and getting into third-party management, you now have a different person that you have to report to that may have different views of the world. And you know, one of the things that we've sometimes run into is like someone might say, hey, you know, your cost structure is so much different from another person, another manager's cost structure. And it's like, yeah, that might be true, but we're also very different company from that other company as well. What surprised you most about going and building the third-party management business? So, so I have a 10-year-old daughter and, you know, she, with the, with, which she's learning a lot about in school and has for the last couple of years, and, or I've learned from her, is this whole thing about having a growth mindset. And it's all about, okay, so you get something right, that's great. But, you know, if you get something wrong, like that's really great because then you could really learn. And, and I love, you know, I, I love the way that that that's termed. And, you know, I think it's an interesting thing. And I think something that I'm proud of how I hold is, well, we have conviction and belief. We always want to figure out how we can be better. And I think that gets back to being curious. And so one of the things that we're doing on the third party side, which, you know, is, is, is incredibly important to me from a strategic standpoint is we really only want to manage for a small number of owners who we are important to, and they are incredibly important to us. And we want them to view us as, you know, the, their most trusted partner. And we want to view them as, you know, an unbelievably important partner of ours where we can have very open dialogue about how we can do things better, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, and that we are focused on it as if we were, as if we were the owner. So just like, you know, on, on our own assets. And I think what's, what's important about that and, and, you know, our managing hotels for third parties, a couple is, is, you know, only a few years old now is that the people that like everything else, the people that you work with and the people that you partner with are so important 
because we spend so much time investing in the culture of this company. And by definition, like that is an extension of our company and the culture that we want to have. And it is actually great because the thing that's so good about having third-party management is that when we have kind and curious people on the other side of that partnership, we are learning from them. Hopefully they're learning from us. We're putting it together and then we're being much better and much more impactful. And, you know, there's things that we, you know, the thing about the hotel business is that there's a, there's a flip side to everything, right? You spend more money. Is there an ROI on it? You don't know you make you. And so, you know, having people that will try things with us, we'll see, be open-minded to trying things, us all recognizing no matter who idea it was, if it worked, let's do more of it. If it's not, let's take, let's scale it back. And, and dealing with, you know, people in a very kind way is something that I think is just so additive to the ecosystem. And so, you know, it's, it's really about making sure that we can continue. I've never, so my wife, who is, you know, really the driving force behind everything I do is she, she was the inspiration behind the name of the company. She's an author. She's an amazing author. Anyone listening, I hope you buy her books. Plug it, Um, plug it. All right. So her name's Christina Alger. Um, She's a New York times bestselling author. She's written four books. Her most recent is a book called Girls Like Us, but thrillers, family dramas, like just amazing books. Girls Like Us, Banker's Wife, Darlings, This Was Not the Plan. They're all fabulous. And, and, I, and I highly recommend you reading it. But I always talk about her because she really is my idol. And, you know, in sort of the literary spectrum, there's, there's two sides. There's, and she might not say it the same way I would. So, you know, this is, this is me fumbling this, but there's, incredibly literary authors, which might be very, you know, perfectly trained authors, but, you know, write about things that might not have a big readership. And then there's commercial authors that might produce more work that's less technically good and, but they sell a lot more copies. And so, you know, I think there's like, you know, and and there's obviously books that cross over and all that, but, but that I think is kind of like, you know, a spectrum that exists. And I've never wanted to be you know, sort of, you know, I always said that she is, in my mind, because she is my favorite author, she is the most commercial of literary authors and and the most literary of commercial authors, and she's the perfect sweet spot on that spectrum. And, you know, that's what I want us to be. I don't want us to be too small, where we don't have a big impact in what we do, and we can't leave a mark and in, in everything we do. And then I don't want us to be too big to where we actually can't where we just do a commoditized job. And so like everything in life, I try to follow her and be at that sweet spot of where scale is to our advantage. It can give us impact and allow us to do our jobs better. And so, you know, that's been a a, a very valuable addition to the company um, because it's a lot of, you know, we, we've been able to really innovate a lot more and try a lot more and have a lot more scale and and, and breadth to it, but but only if done in a in a, in a smart and, and strategic way. How did you start EOS? Like, what was the the process of building the company, capitalizing the company, and then getting capital to make investments? When I first had the idea of starting EOS, you know, it was probably a couple years before I actually did, and. I wanted to make sure that everything was buttoned up at my previous firm before I left. 
that was very important to me. That was a, a, and I had a couple of investors that said that they were interested in backing me for a couple of years before I ultimately started it. And so, you know, the process was a lot of thought, making sure everything was sort of buttoned up behind me and, you know, kind of thinking that I had a couple of partners uh, and investors that would back me going forward. But I, I didn't want to start anything until I had left. And so it really started at the end of 2016, early 2017, off of, you know, with a couple of people I had a lot of trust in over the last 20 years that they would be there to support me. And, and, it, and it really played on this notion from the highest level was the hotel business is this, the travel industry has great tailwinds. People want to travel, people want experiences, and, you know, we see that. But that there's so much fragmentation in the industry that if you can actually align interests better and get rid of a lot of the leakage, that you can buy high-quality real estate and make better returns than anything, any other form of real estate out there. That was the, that was the, the thesis. And we had a great track record of 10 years of doing it. And we learned, we made a lot of mistakes that I wanted to improve on and learn from. And that was really the, that was really the thesis and believing that we had optionality and people to capitalize us at at the onset. And then, you know, like anything in life, you know, we started, maybe the timing was very late cycle, but we always thought there were things that you would be able to find and do. And we did, although, you know, less before COVID. And then, you know, we've just sort of like made sure that we are trying to anticipate downfalls you know, along the way, but it was, it was, it was really just conviction that I wanted to do something on my own that would leave a lasting impact, maybe create something that could outlive me and something I could be proud of. Looking back at some of those mistakes, maybe in the early days or at your prior firm, what would you tell someone looking to start a hospitality private equity real estate firm about building the business from the early stages and also finding and building a team in those early stages as well? Those are, those are great questions. I think I would say one of the things that I think is surprising about starting a business, and that's why I have great respect for you and everybody else that does it and want to help people that start their own businesses as you know, is that you have to be patient because it takes a long time and you have to be prepared for, you know, anything to come at you. And, and that's exciting. Like there's a lot of excitement in that, but there's also a lot of, you have to be resilient because you truly don't know what's going to come. And in that period of time, you'll also learn a lot about who cares about you, you know, and who your friends are. You know, there'll be people that sometimes you're like, oh, well, gosh, like if I start this, I could imagine these people will be super helpful. And you call them and they're like, oh, that's so great. We're so happy for you. And you're like, okay, like, <laughs> all right. And, and then you'll find people that, you know, you didn't expect to be helpful will be incredibly helpful. And, and it's just the world's an interesting place like that, right? You don't know what's going on in everybody's life at any point in time. So I think it's that you really want to feel like you've got good supporters First and foremost, you need to make sure you've got support at home because again, like my wife's been with me every step of the way during this process, you know, got three young kids. And if you don't have all that support from 
at home, you don't have the mental space to sort of like create what you're doing on the work side. On the team front, what I think is the team front is a, is a constant evolution. And early on, I think that the most important thing that I found is to hire people that you trust because at that early stage, trust is important talent is important. And so if you can get the most trusted people that you have in your network that you have worked with before and that you know are talented and you know what you're going to get, I think that is just incredibly valuable. I think that pretty quickly what you learn is if the business evolves is that you pretty quickly have to be you know growing and hiring outside your network. And at the end of the day, you know, talent attraction and talent acquisition and then giving people the place where they can do their best work is ultimately, I think, going to be the major driver of success because these businesses are so based on people. They're so based on, I believe, culture and retention and everything. And so you have to start thinking about that early and often because I I do think especially, you know, as the world becomes more volatile, being surrounded by very talented people allows you to free up to continue to do more and more. How have you figured out how to incentivize people on the operations side with an investment mindset. Incentives on the investment side are pretty straightforward. I think that's very well talked about, but how would you make the connection on the operations side? So, you know, maybe this is me being a little simplistic and, and I know it's not perfect, but we basically incentivize them exactly the same way that we're incentivized on the ownership side. And so the point is that what we really want is for the operations team to think like owners. And it is really remarkable because if, if you think about like what people at the property and think about you know, a general manager, right? They're, they're focused on their guests and they're focused on their employees, right? And, and they're focused on their profitability or value creation. But on a day-to-day basis, you always have, you know, guests that could be happier. You have employees that might be stressed or working hard. And I think that the result of that is, you know, you, or you could see like very easily like, okay, well, just hire more people, offer more amenities, spend more money. And that makes my life easier. And that's great. But, but does it really, but it's an easy sort of like thing to say you're working towards. And, and the minute you actually start making, you know, the teams think about ROI, right, is, well, you know, d- does that extra person really make this hotel make more money? Does that really make overall the guests feel better? How are we allocating the monies that we do have? Like, what are the things that sit outside my P&L? Like, are there neighbors that I could create better relationships with? Are there things like that? And once you start getting the leadership team at properties to start thinking like owners in that way, it really has this unbelievably remarkable effect because they're really making hundreds of decisions a day that impact the overall trajectory of, you know, the investment. And so, and it also allows ownership and everybody to talk to them on the exact same level where they're like, oh, we get it, right? Like, you know, and and it's a balance because they have very complex problems they're dealing with. They have to make decisions very quickly and they need the authority to be able to do that. But 
once you get that mindset there, the amount of involvement that you need actually from people outside the property that don't know what's going on day-to-day basis goes down. They feel more ownership over what they're doing and control. And it's all aligned because we're all sort of in it together. And so is it perfect? No. Is it better than I've seen? Yes. Someone recommended this book to me called The Great Game of Business, and I started reading it. And the premise is essentially making employees convert to an owner mindset, but also very much like sharing the financials with all levels of employees. And I'm not done with the book, and I'm certainly not there yet sharing the full financials with all levels of the employees. But we had a monthly business review last week, and I kind of made a very simple slide presentation for the corporate operations team, like what happens beyond the hotel P&L and how much the hotel P&L impacts everything on the ownership side, you know, after debt service and what the returns are and what the distributions are, factoring in CapEx projects, et cetera. And it was in one hotel where the first half of the year, they just crushed it. And then in two months, they almost lost all the gains they had made above budget. And I was basically showing them like, look how quickly it can all fall apart. And you may think it's just falling apart on the top line, but look at the impact it has on the bottom line. And it was basically like, we raise money from individual investors. We expect certain returns and based around this strategy. And what you are doing in sales has a direct impact on our ability to grow the company, to raise new investors, to have this be a successful investment. And it was, it was pretty interesting because we've never done that before. Yeah, I think like open sharing of all that is amazing and how people fit into the larger ecosystem and, and, and what we're trying to do and how that impacts it, I think is, is really remarkable. And I think we have to figure out how to do more of it. But I, I, I agree with that, the philosophy wholeheartedly because you, you can all of a sudden take someone from being like, wait, I don't understand why this isn't happening yet to, oh, I get the issues that Jake's dealing with. And I, I also agree that if, like, if I had a priority list, that would be number four and that we can only deal with three right now. And so that makes me feel good. I can understand that. I can explain that to my teams. And I, I think that transparency and all of that is, 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 is so important and, and, and incredibly powerful. It is. I'll keep you posted how it's working. I want to bring it home, Jonathan, with like an interesting question. Where do your investments most often go wrong? You know, we've been pretty fortunate to have investments that have adios, you know, which which is only the majority of our investments are actually fairly early in their life. They're going, they're going well. I would say two things. I'd say in the current environment, the thing that has been tougher is actually getting from sort of planning to execution to finish of renovations. And so when that lags, you know, we are in a business that's time dependent. And so making sure that we are staying on top of the timing of implementation is is important because it's easy to say you know what things are going really well we can just wait a year but ultimately if you if if that happens 
it, it can be a drag. And so I'd say making sure that the appropriate urgency is there to get things done, you know, sort of when we say we're going to, you know, and, and usually that happens on investments that are going really well because you're sort of like, wait, no, it's okay. Let's wait a year. And so it's the balance of implementation or, you know, proactively deciding to hold something, I'd say is, is, is that is probably the biggest challenge that we're dealing with right now as we come out of COVID and like supply chain issues and just overall renovation related stuff, you know, and then I'd say like over the course of my career, I think that, you know, the most challenging things are when we ever stray away from like our fundamental beliefs. So if there's, if there's something that we fundamentally, you know, say we are not going to invest in markets that have a lot of supply growth and we say, oh, but this is a little bit different because this hotel's immune or this or that, you know, ultimately I've seen, you know, I've seen it just come back to just be headwinds that make things harder and take up a lot more time. And, and I think the hard thing there, or, you know, I guess, you know, maybe this is me being a little hard-headed is we usually don't stray away from our fundamental beliefs. And, you know, we've been wrong plenty of times and we're usually wrong by missing opportunity rather than getting into something that we regret later. But, you know, once we've missed it, I usually don't feel a desire to sort of jump in late. I asked the same traditional closing question to all guests on the podcast. And that is out of all the hotels in the world, in your portfolio, out of your portfolio, it doesn't matter. What's your favorite hotel? I have a couple and I'm going to keep it all in the portfolio. A hotel in the Florida Keys called Isla Bella. In many ways, I was part of the start of the company. And so that is, is sort of very near and dear to my heart. And I usually try to get down there with the family once a year. And, and, and we have some great memories down there. So that, that, that is that, you know, I think that I, you know, if I had to keep one, I think because it's so, I spend family time down there. It was very early in the life of the creation of EOS. And, you know, I do love the Florida Keys. I would say that that is probably the hotel that I would pick number one. Florida Keys are amazing. Why was it such a good deal? <laughs> it's very hard to build down there. And so, you know, really the, the, the main developer in the Florida Keys over the last 40 years has been somebody who I'm very close to. Uh, his name is Pritam Singh. He built the hotel. He built a great hotel, built it. You know, he, he, he builds really well. He builds pretty inexpensively. So, you know, assets are worth a lot more than they ultimately cost. So he was able to make a big profit. We were able to buy into it sort of upon completion and create a great structure that worked for everybody incredibly well. And then the hotel just continues to do really well. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was awesome. Thanks for having me, Jake. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.